Hello, and welcome to Building Sustainability Podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hart, aka Jeffrey the Natural Builder. Building Sustainability consists of conversations with designers, builders, makers, dreamers, and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. Hello, welcome to episode 56 of the Building Sustainability Podcast. This week, we are talking to Daniel Postma about turf houses. I want to start very quickly just by saying apologies for being a bit late on this episode. I've got a lot going on, haven't I? I've got one really big project that is just coming into fruition. That uh, it's big and it's uh, very visible and is a really great step for natural materials. Uh, I can't say much more than that, but as soon as I can, you will be sure to hear about it. Uh, in fact, I might try and get some of the people involved on the podcast to talk about what they've done and why. What else to tell you? Daniel talks later about workshops that he has got going on. So if you're listening to this and you think turf, turf building, that is what I want to know about. And you can get yourself to Scotland, then make sure you check out the links in the show notes for those workshops. Uh, there are two videos that you should watch. They are recordings from, first of all, the ACAN Architects Climate Action Network. Uh, They did a special presentation on straw as a building material. That is definitely worth checking out. It's got the who's who, including Craig White, our last guest. Uh, So that's a very good thing to watch. Um, Also, the European Straw Bale Gathering. The video from the UK section is available now, so links to that in the show notes. Uh, You can see me do a a presentation on earth and straw, uh, which takes actually a a large chunk of what I talk about from this podcast. It also includes a terrible pun. Uh, What else to say? Uh, Other things. I'm talking really fast because this is quite a long episode and I had to cut out 20, sort of 25 minutes, which is all available on the Patreon site. And that takes the total amount of extra audio up to over eight and a half hours now. Uh, So, yeah, maybe get involved and be part of that. And that is exactly what Lawrence Luscombe, uh, Niall Harl and Megan Jackson have done. Uh, Thank you to those three for their uh, support. It really does mean a lot. And a big shout out to Ivan, who has increased his uh, his support and is now getting himself a hand carved wooden spoon. Nice. Part of the uh, the money that the Patreon uh, money goes towards is getting me uh, new equipment. Um, and this episode now is being recorded on my brand new microphone, uh, which is a special one so that I can go and do some field recordings. I've got a couple of events coming up that I want to go out and talk to people out in the field, literally in a field. And this microphone is going to enable us to do that so yes that's the sort of thing you need to invest in and cost money but i've i've gone on enough about patreon for ages now so what else can i tell you oh yes the the prize draw kirsten uh, sent me an email to say thank you very much that she just won although she lives in australia and felt like it would be not a good use of sort of postage and shipping things uh, to send her the prizes so we have redrawn the prize and now Simon Lovett, you have won. Uh, 
congratulations. Uh, right, what else to tell you? Oh, so yes, this episode starts off with a section that uh, Daniel suggested we uh, we start with. It's uh, it's borrowed from uh, the Guilty Feminist podcast. I'm a natural builder, but and uh, I think it's quite nice to start with some of our failings uh, and how everyone isn't perfect, and we can all be doing better at uh, at sustainability. So. Yeah, I really hope you enjoy this. Uh, I had a really nice time chatting to Daniel. He is a hugely entertaining and lovely human being. Um, so thank you so much to Daniel. And I think that's that's everything I need to say. So enjoy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm a natural builder, but we have two cars, both of which are diesels. <laughs> yes. Yes. Do you know what? That was actually going to be one of mine. And uh, realizing that, I mean, I've now moved to the country. When I lived in Bristol, I didn't have a car. I cycled everywhere. And now, like, I'm living the more countryside, you know, eco life. And it doesn't work that way. I now drive oh, a big so diesel Yeah. <laughs> Being in the countryside is definitely part of our excuse. Yeah. Um, the fact that these cars are diesels doesn't, that, there's no real excuse for that. Well, diesels are better for, they run longer and so they are better in a sort of uh, embodied energy way. But I think they're just worse for humans breathing it. Yeah. All right. Okay. So they're, they're both second hands. And and we do we do keep our cars for a very long time, and I think we've spent more on repairs, certainly for one of the cars than the actual purchase value. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> I think that's that's well justified. I think, <laughs> and I I've seen now uh, that uh, that I mean so in Bristol and in Bath. 
they're starting to charge people who drive diesels. And I find it so annoying because it's, yeah, they've encouraged everyone to get diesels. And now they're saying, actually, you know, you shouldn't have diesels, so we're going to charge you. But they're not subsidizing the uh, alternatives, like the, you know, where, where are all the electric car subsidies and the electric van subsidies? Yeah. Yeah, they're high on our wish list, but mm. um, their supplies attached to them. Quite a big one. Yeah, and many <laughs> questions with regard to the production and embodied energy of new-build cars. Yeah. So we're just biding our time and keeping these cars running for as long as possible. Good, nice. So I'm a natural builder, but right now I am wrapping my house in plastic uh, and taping it shut with more plastic and the tape comes with a little layer of plastic that you have to peel off and discard uh, and it makes me feel dirty yeah what do you do yeah it's a discussion that's featured in some of your earlier podcasts which was mm. terribly interesting and it's good to see both sides of the argument definitely uh, featuring it's weird for me because i'm used to wrapping a building in plaster and you know some lime or some clay to make it airtight and now I'm doing a totally timber building. It's, it's like, what, what do you, you, know, you sort of have to if you want to get high performance? And it seems from what, I, what I've understood for this particular building that with the walls being so thin, it's the high performance that has become a priority. You exactly. don't have the luxury of building uh, 60 centimeter thick walls. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, mean, I, I could, but uh, I don't think there'd be any room for, for anything else, really. A micro house rather than a tiny house. Yes. I'm a natural builder, but um, given the choice, I prefer to drive the less economic 4x4. Oof. Crikey, that is a... That's a... Can you justify that? No, no, there's no justification. <laughs> it's, it's just pure enjoyment. Um, yeah. So sometimes I can if we're crossing a ford or going out in the countryside. Sometimes, of course, for work. If I need to carry a, a, a trailer load of turf out of a, a boggy field, yeah, um, I feel it's justified. Yeah, because I'd, I'd probably need to be, bring in a, a crane to get the, the, the two-wheel drive out if I chance that. Yeah. Um, other than that, no, that's... yeah. Do you find yourself uh, like making sure that you go across a ford just to justify driving the, the big 4 by 4 No, thankfully not. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> The only sort of additional push there is the kid saying, "Can we, can we please take the, take, take, take the four by four? Yeah, they don't enjoy the other one. It's got darkened windows, and they sit, they sit a bit lower down, and and the suspension's so much better that it, you just sort of float across these country roads, and it makes it makes them nauseous. Uh, so they they prefer the other car too. Yeah, we don't drive a lot though. So that's, <laughs> All right, so I'm a natural builder, but for a while, I stopped recycling because that <laughs> I feel bad, and I've told a few people this, and they've gone, what? Uh, but it was when I realized that we were just shipping all our recycling to Indonesia or somewhere like that, and I thought, if I put it in this bin... I'm creating like this whole other thing and sort of sending our problem off. Or if I put it in this bin, then we're having to deal with it as our own country. And it lasted about, 
I mean, it was a few months where I did that. Uh, and I'm back on recycling train again now. You'll be pleased to, to know. <laughs> it's interesting to hear that, though. Um, yeah, the, the international export of our um, reusables, or well, not well, reusable materials, yeah. is, um, is something that's I've, I've spotted and that has raised some concerns. But is this is, is there a movement? Do you know? Is there a movement of people that are sort of deliberately oh, not? I, I don't know recycling. It seems like the sort of reason. base level of sustainability, isn't it? It's like the, the sort of social, you know, but I recycle. I'm, I'm a good person. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I've, I've not met anyone else that's a, sort of done it for the same reasons as, as me. I've met some people that are just lazy. We found that a big difference coming over from the Netherlands where recycling has really taken off. Um, and we had a different bin for everything. And as far as I understand, that was all processed, maybe not all, but most of it within the country. Mm-hmm. And we could, when it came to plastics, we could chuck about just about anything into the plastic recycling bin. And here we all need to, so some plastics can go in, some can't, needs to be washed, yeah. needs to be cleaned. Um, there's certainly a, a bigger threshold and some things we just can't recycle. We had turpentine that we um, was left in, in our house when we bought it. Turpentine and, in fact, a whole barrel of um, fluid DPC. Okay. Um, for injecting DPC uh, damp-proof coursing in, in masonry walls, which, of course, we don't have any use for. <laughs> so um, we were looking for a way to get rid of this. And at one point I was laughed at by a, a council employee um, for suggesting that I'd bring my, my flammable turpentine to the um, to their recycling centre. And they said, well, no, we can't accept that because it's it's a it's flammable material. So it's cardboard. But I never got an answer. What I, apparently, I think the only solution that, well, it wasn't said out loud, but the only real solution was to flush it down the toilet, it seemed. Right. So that's an unresolved issue, along with where to recycle our fire extinguisher, <laughs> which we've never found an answer to. Well, I guess if uh, if anyone in uh, in your area needs some turpentine, uh, <laughs> we'll put Daniel's uh, We're contact gradually details. gradually using it to light the fire. <laughs> Whenever we put the fire pit on in the garden, we'll use a, a splash of turpentine to get it going. <laughs> We've got a jerry can, jerry can full of it, so it'll, it'll last us a fair while. I bet, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a natural builder, but our previous house was a concrete and brick urban new build that replaced an earlier concrete and brick new build that had only been there for 40 years before it was demolished. Ooh. Was it, did you do the demolishing? Was it just that? We didn't do the demolishing. No, though I think we're in part responsible because the developer that did it and then, uh, or had it done, and then built the new builds, we gave them a whole load of, uh, we gave them a lot of money mm. um, for their for their product. So, <laughs> yeah. What, do you feel like, would it have happened if you hadn't have given them the money? Do you feel, or do you feel like you're just sort of being part of the the sort of economic system that, that means that still happens? It would definitely still have happened if we, as individuals, wouldn't have given them the money. Yeah. But that's 
that's not an excuse. Because mm-hmm. um, unless we all stand up against, yeah, or stand up for our principles, nothing will change, will it? So, yeah. That's very true. My only excuse there was um, naivety. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, but looking back on it, I think, yeah, well, we're part of, we, we were part of that system. Yeah. We paid someone. We paid some somebody for, for that work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, I'm a natural builder, but I'm building a house on a big hunk of metal, a big, expensive for me, expensive for the environment. Uh, yeah, that. Like I've calculated how much carbon the insulation in my walls is going to take out of the atmosphere, but I haven't yet calculated. <laughs> how much the carbon that's in the metal is going to put in. I mean, I don't think this build will be uh, sequestering carbon, like in a net way. I think it's, yeah. I mean, I think it will be not the worst, but I'm definitely not hitting that like high high bar I set myself. Is that a difficult decision for you to make? Or is it because... I think it's an experiment, isn't it? What you're what you're trying to achieve with this yeah with this build it is. I mean, it's it's a it's all about the compromise, isn't it? And it's about because I want something. I almost said need, but I don't think that's true. Uh, because I want something that's mobile, and yeah, that the, that's sort of the way to to create mobility, or it's a way. Uh, yeah, it's difficult to swallow. We have a, a similar issue here. Mm-hmm. I'm a natural builder, but our current house is a poorly insulated static caravan. Mm-hmm. Which we're heating with gas from cylinders and electric heaters. Yeah. Yeah, I can, uh, I can appreciate that. I'm living in a very damp caravan at the moment. I didn't say it was damp. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it is, of course, when there's condensation... Though we we knew we'd be in the, in it for a couple of years with the family, yeah. So we did um, seek out a, a quite a sturdy one with double glazing and central heating. That's all right then. So in terms of comfort, we're 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 okay. Yeah, but still, it it does embody many things that we're trying to move away from. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a temporary home. I mean, it's while you're yeah. you're renovating your your sort of main house, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you're doing that all in in good ways because we're going to talk about that today. Yeah, as much as we can. Yeah, yeah certainly. Sweet. Well, I guess um, I try not to, to go in for uh, the sort of tell me about your background uh, question, but I think for you it's really interesting because uh, you've come into natural building from quite a in my mind, quite a sort of obscure uh, route. Yeah, certainly an unconventional route. I think I think most of my route in, into natural building, uh, and in that sense, my background um, is it's mostly about turf. So if we're going to talk about turf anyway, yeah, um, I might as well set out a bit of the background. Um, I was so I was born in Scotland, um, but we moved to the Netherlands when I was. 20 months old so I've grown up in the Netherlands mm-hmm. um, but that, that link to, to the UK has always been there um, 
And then fast forward to my um, my studies in archaeology. When I was doing my master's degree in the Netherlands, a local heritage museum came up with the idea to reconstruct an early medieval turf house for which plans had been excavated in the area. In fact, there was there were quite a few excavations that had produced these early medieval ground plans. Mm-hmm. What, what what were they finding there? The lower sections of surviving turf walls. This is this area in the north of the Netherlands in particular used to be a, a wide salt marsh up to 10 or 20 kilometers in width mm-hmm. and not having any natural heights um, or timber for that matter. Um, people had to adapt to quite an extreme measure in order to live there. Uh-huh. It was excellent grassland, so it was great for, for cattle rearing. And it, it, in fact, it, um, that's where the Frisian Empire um, reached its, its height. Uh-huh. Uh, with wide international trade and uh, and so on. So it was a wealthy period uh, in a fertile region, um, as long as you managed to adapt to the environmental conditions there. And, and, and they did that in a way of raising artificial settlement mounds so you could live on a dry spot when the area flooded up to about 50 times a year. And part of that raising of the settlement was done by building houses of with thick turf walls, so cutting turf blocks from the surrounding grassland and stacking them up um, in in some fashion to to produce um, about a meter thick walls for their for their longhouses. And it's quite a remarkable uh, type of structure that caught the attention of local archaeologists. Mm-hmm already in the 1940s, and, and various other excavations had been been executed um, and, and produced more of these house plans. Um, but until this local museum raised the question of what the, these buildings actually looked like, um, nobody really sat down to think about that part of the, <laughs> the whole equation. We were just looking at the ground plans, and um, many of the sites in the Netherlands are, are truncated sites, so where the, the top of the, the archaeological settlements has actually been, been ploughed out. So the tradition of researching archaeological ground plans was very much one geared towards um, just documenting the plans and comparing these from a typological point of view. Mm-hmm. So how lengths and widths and um, interior divisions developed over time. But never given, never given much thought to how they actually functioned in a technical sense. So, of course, when you want to reconstruct one, uh, you get confronted with all these technical challenges. Um, and with regard to turf walls, for example, um, can you even build a wall with turf? Will it stand up? There, was, there were quite a few leads in earlier archaeological um, publications for that region. Uh, and they were all very similar. Everybody seemed to agree that you couldn't build a turf wall up to over about a meter in height. Um, it would have to grow green again because it's the roots that keep the turf together. Um, you'd probably need quite, a, quite a, a batter to the wall in order for it to be stable. Um, they certainly can't be load-bearing. So um, I was following all these various leads for my, um, uh, my master's thesis in order to produce um, a reconstruction model for this museum then to, to build. And um, as I was doing that, it, it transpired that not only were all the buildings in that particular period, so 5th, 6th, 7th century AD, built with turf, regardless of their sort of social status, um, 
Um, so it was, certainly wasn't a material that was just used by the poorer layers of society. Mm -hmm. the, the elites were using them too. Um, they, all, they also turned out to be, to be built with load-bearing turf walls. Um, so, yeah, so there were, this raised a lot of questions in terms of what you can actually achieve with turf. And as I started looking around, um, I came across other examples, in part through links to, to Scotland. Uh -huh. Um, and one with um, Bruce Walker in particular, uh, a vernacular specialist at the time, um, in, working in Scotland, who had published on turf and on longhouses more generally and the timber structures that were associated with them and the thatching. Um, and he had these examples from Nebraska in, in the United States that showed a two-story turf-walled house, and I came across um, turf domes in Iceland and all these sorts of wonder, wonderful uh, load-bearing turf structures and certainly a wide variety in terms of techniques and quality and turf use in various um, social contexts for um, yeah, religious buildings and um, pastoral farms. Mm -hmm. So this, this really clashed with our um, existing sort of, uh, ideas about turf use in, in the Netherlands in the past. And I, I, I think I'm just naturally drawn to things that don't seem to, to line up. If somebody says, well, you can't do that with turf. <laughs> I just think, well, I've seen this one example out there that sort of argues the opposite. So I'll follow that one example that doesn't fit in. Yeah. Because apparently something's, something more is going on than, than what we're seeing. Um, yeah. So, Needless to say, it took about two years to finish that master's <laughs> thesis. Um, but it did develop into a, a PhD project um, that still is unfinished, but we did go through all the motions. And, and as part of that PhD um, project, we, we built an experimental turf house. I actually built the, the turf house that this museum set out to reconstruct oh, great. Uh, myself uh, with a whole team of volunteers, of course. So that was a, a wonderful project, and that set out to test this idea of, of load-bearing turf walls. Not so, so much to test if it could be done, because we already established on the basis of the ground plans that it had been done in the past. Mm -hmm. So this experiment really became about trying to figure out how they managed to achieve that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nice. So I didn't succeed, though, the first time. Oh, no? The building collapsed, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, tell us about that, because I think, so, you know, uh, learning from mistakes is, is kind of key, isn't it? So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's, that was, in a way, of great benefit to the research project. Of course, it wasn't desirable at all, and it was, in fact, a great risk. And, and we didn't, thankfully, nobody got um, hurt in that process. Mm -hmm other than my ego, I think everything was, was fine. <laughs> um, and, and thankfully, there was great support from, from the, the local, um, so the provinces and, mm -hmm. and the council and, and from the university. So we, we did get the opportunity to, to do it again. And the buildings, the second building still there and in use um, exactly as it was intended to be. Yeah. Um, so the reason for the collapse was re really just inexperience and, and making mistakes um, I should do when you try things the first time, um, and particularly a combination of errors occurring in a particular part of the building that after heavy rainfall brought it down. Uh -huh. um, thankfully enough of the structure survived. We actually did a, a little excavation 
in the collapsed structure and, and we'll manage to figure out exactly how and where it um, it starts to come down. Nice. Oh, that's good. So, um, sort of, you did, you so got that, to do some archaeology on, on a, a modern building. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was really good. And it, yeah, it produced a lot of, um, well, as we say in archaeology, um, it's experimental archaeology as you try and reconstruct a building like this with the objective of producing information on the process and, and use of materials. Sure. I think the biggest benefit was really through experiential archaeology, which is just experiencing the use of these materials, uh-huh. handling them, and going through the most uh, through the motions of cutting the turf and shifting it around, and yeah. experiencing firsthand the differences between silt and clay content, and when do the turfs break, and why do we actually build them with the grass side down? Right. These sort of questions. Uh-huh. And I guess so, sort of learning. Like how big of a piece of turf is a is a manageable by a you know a sort of person or is it a team game to build it? Is it you know absolutely? How much of that sort of uh, knowledge existed in in the sort of ex- existing buildings, and how much were you figuring out as you went? We'll be back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat Show. That's right, and I'm Pat. Looking for a podcast that's like catching up with old friends? Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin, and we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat Show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of information, I think, still exists in surviving buildings, though very few buildings with turf survive in Scotland at the moment. Mm-hmm. And although quite a few have been published on by by this Bruce Walker in the past, it didn't really drill into the technicalities of it. Um, it did set out sort of variations in maybe choice of materials, whether it's a, a peaty turf or more of a silty turf or whether it has clay in it how that affects, for example, your bonding patterns or whether or not it can be a load-bearing wall. And that, that wasn't, that's never been part of the research. It's very much been a sort of first exploration of turf as a building material to the point that it did raise awareness amongst archaeologists in, in Scotland in particular that turf was a widely used building material in the past and there were various survey projects on the go just as I started my um, my my master's research, and I bumped into um, uh, somebody, Brian Wilkinson, who was for what is now Historic Environment Scotland, was um, involved with um, uh, rural pasts, Scotland's rural past, a survey project, community um, based, or at least involving a lot of community members in surveying um, surviving buildings or building remains rather throughout the Scottish countryside. And, um, and and him being aware that a lot of turf was used in the construction of these buildings, he'd uh, developed stronger links with um, a turf building school in Iceland and went there himself to learn about turf in, in from a practical point of view. <clears throat> and he pointed me towards that same school, for which I'm, I'm ever thankful for, 
because I managed to get a, a small fund from from my university at the time and and went over there. That was back in two thousand and nine, and um, and did this turf building course, and that completely slashed all the preconceptions we had about turf that the walls need to be green. They will say no, they, you don't want them to go green because at the best, um, in the best case, that would maybe keep the, the outer 10 or 20 centimetres densely rooted. But the wall, if the wall's a metre thick, um, the remainder of the wall will just remain moist and, and the roots in there will, will start to mould and decay. So in fact, you, you want the wall to dry out, uh, much like you would do with a, a cob or a mud hole. Okay, so it's um, sort structure. of like making adobes almost. It's uh, Very yeah. much so, yeah. 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 And certainly the salt marsh turf that we cut in the Netherlands for this reconstruction had so much clay in it, and it was so densely layered with clay and silt. And it actually had very very little root matter in it, uh-huh. um, that it was very much like a mud block, huh. more more perhaps than a... Than a uh, you'd expect a piece of turf to be. Yeah, I I, I was trying to think about you know the the process and, and what I know about turf and and I was thinking about it like a mud block with a really good fiber content in it. Um, you know, like we'd probably put a straw or something in a in a clay block. Um, but yeah, you've got the the natural roots. It's all there. Yeah. yeah, that's definitely an ideal mix if you can get that mixture between um, clays and and maybe some sort of aggregate and your fibres. Yeah, that's an ideal building block. I suppose what's interesting um, is that we, as clay builders or earth builders, would definitely try to stay away from topsoil, and you're kind of going in for the topsoil there. Yeah. Yeah, turf is definitely the, the odd one out. Mm. Uh, from a from a modern perspective, I should add. Yeah. So um, I think, and that's definitely something that shines through in some of your earlier podcasts. So listeners might will be familiar with that. Maybe the, what you're looking for in terms of earth construction, uh, you dig down to your subsoil, which doesn't have any seeds that are going to sprout in your plaster work. It doesn't have any worms crawling out of your your mud wall. Um, so this is this nice sterile um, soil that you find underneath the, the top layer. And then you add in fibres if you choose to do so, and you go for a nice strong straw. Um, and then these turf builders come along and they just, like the part that any other earth builder would cast aside digging down to their subsoil, that's the part that the turf builder uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't use straw um, in the turf, um, we don't even use hay in the turf. Our hay is still alive and kicking. It's live grassroots that are in there, um, and there's all sorts of creepy crawlies in there. Um, so yeah, so it's it's it seems to be quite different from earth building in that respect. It only really starts making sense when you look into the history of earth building and realize that that hay and maybe not so much topsoil, but sort of dirty mixes. Um, were very common in the past. And that's certainly something that um, Becky Little is raising awareness for because mm-hmm. uh, it's important for, for building conservation. Yeah, Silts were used. Silt doesn't really seem to have any sort of use in, in earth building uh, nowadays. It's not an aggregate. It doesn't really give that compressive strength that sand might do. Um, it doesn't function as a binder like clay would do. So... What's what's the use of silt? A lot of turf has silt in it. Yeah. Um, and and from experiential 
uh, use. It seems to add. It seems to be good for the flexibility of the turf. Yeah, in particular. So I guess I think what's it's sort of coming into my mind is that maybe that this is a hypothesis that you can either crush or uh, <laughs> amend. Uh, it, it seems like turf building was maybe more popular in a time before kind of maybe digging tools got like it, it became possible to dig down further uh, and i my sort of experience of turf building is really only those really old type ones in in like iceland and places like that um and it definitely seems like to to my sort of outside perspective that turf building you know has died out uh for for much longer than say earth building has yeah um in Scotland, there's quite a, a distinct end to the practice of building in turf, which came about through agricultural improvements. So that's only really about 200 years ago. Okay, so that's Not pretty to recent. that point, uh, late 18th century um, travellers' reports report widely on the use of turf. Um, I actually found another one just yesterday, which was great. I think that was from a military report in the Highlands, in the Badenoch area. And... Um, here it was reported that the townships, well, first of all, that no stone buildings were present in that area, although it was quite widely populated, implying everything was built in earth. And and then they reported as they approached one of these townships, they seemed to be sort of very well populated with many buildings there until they came in more closely and realized that a lot of these buildings were actually derelict. Um, and that was due to the practice, which was included in this description, that as a building was reaching its end, it was perhaps first used as a buyer, downcycled from a dwelling to a buyer or a hen house or something like that, more of a, for, for livestock or as, as a shed for agricultural use. Uh, and then as it really was beyond repair, um, they would um, take out the, the timber structure for, for reuse in a new building and the walls were used as a kill yard, having been course enriched with all the the livestock um, droppings inside um, so yeah a wonderful circular use of of a building material or in fact a whole a whole building type um, closely linked into the agricultural cycle there and it's, it's it survived certainly in the uh, on the Scottish west coast for a bit longer in particular with regards to um, to thatching where thatch would have, would have been raked off sometimes annually to be used as a fertilizer. Oh, wow. Um, so close links between land use and and the, the way you build, which, of course, is something that we're now trying to achieve in in modern times. Certainly it has caught the interest of many people, but we're, we're looking towards modern solutions to achieve that. And I think what's interesting from an archaeological perspective is that you start to realize we, we've already been there. We've tried this in the past. It was actually quite successful, but we've moved away from it because of enlightenment and what's come to be known as improvements. It was really <laughs> the improvements for for landowners, of course, who, by reducing maintenance on natural buildings, freed up more time for labour uh, and thereby induced, uh, yeah, increased their their, their profits. Uh-huh. So. Um, yeah, from late eighteen or late seventeen hundreds and, and early nineteenth century, uh, there was a distinct shift towards um, stone buildings, which just lasted longer. Yeah, 
and reduce the maintenance needs and, and of course slate roofs or band tile roofs moving away from from thatching practices sort of going into a much more more permanent style of building yeah yeah and and and, and the great thing is that there's also there's it's also been reported by occupants that this wasn't seen as an improvement to them right uh, not in terms of comfort um, and and sometimes even um Maybe grannies who refuse to go into their white house and would <laughs> stay in their turf-built uh, buyer house, yeah, because it was just so much more comfortable. There's even um, interesting shifts in perception between the old statistical accounts in Scotland and the new statistical accounts. Um, and an article was published on that just a couple of years ago by researchers from the University of Stirling, who looked at the perception of earth as a building material and saw that in the older statistical accounts. So this was basically a recording of all economic activity that was going on in the in the Scottish countryside. Um, and it was quite often commented on the good uh, quality of the buildings, or at least if they were well-maintained and, um, and in good condition. And the overall um, impression of it is that these buildings were, were generally good and in a good condition and looked after. Uh, and that's that's flipped in the second edition, where people are, are the, the comments are more along the lines of uh, too many people really are still living in these old hovels, which of course was the, the trailing um, layer in society that struggled either to, to 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 go along with these these so-called improvements towards stone-built dwellings, um, or for other reasons held on to their their earth structures, but of course. Worse, at the same time, their options to keep up with maintenance um, was reduced and they struggled. And of course, these buildings start to fall in disrepair. And, and that's that last stage of uh, poorly maintained, collapsing earth buildings um, is the image that we're left with mm-hmm. at the end of their, um, their life. And, that, that, and that's a principle that applies widely. It certainly applies to the turf houses in, in Iceland and to the... Um, turf-built squatter cabins that we had in the Netherlands until fairly recently. Yeah. Um, even up to the point that um, photography uh, became available and, and journalists went into the Dutch countryside to record these collapsing, dirty, turf-built hovels. Um, but it's not... We can't really blame the materials. It's this the economic and social environment in which they were last used that's um, that has caused these detrimental living standards it's not yeah not inherent to the material itself yeah the same for any earth building material the parallels with uh you know how how people see cob uh as this sort of you know old-fashioned dirty you know way of living uh i because i must admit i'm slightly you know i've got this slight little prejudice in me i guess it is where i'm thinking like you know, living in a turf building must be like dirty. But, you know, it's just that same. I'm just applying exactly the same mentality. That, that's really just the, the the legacy of the propaganda, the the, the improvement propaganda that yeah. was kindled about 200 years ago. That's this is the legacy of it that we're, we're left with. And of course, we can only change that by showing that the opposite is, is also possible. Nice. Do you have any any kind of... Uh, accounts of what it were, what what they were actually like. You know, what what did people like about living in them, and uh, 
and what were the sort of benefits? There's occasional accounts. I, I think it's mostly the, the comfort level, the insulation value, effectively. Um, they were dry, comfortable. Um, I think, although that, I don't think that's been expressed much, much um, of course, there's a, a, a close link between the people that live in them and the people that built them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, they're a product of the landscape. So I think maybe we're only now, in the current day and age, finding the vocabulary to put into words what um, appeals to us in vernacular structures and more of a traditional building type. Um, and and what, what's, what's that weird feeling we get when we look at modern development? A lot of people feel it, but we don't really have the words for it at this moment to, to well, to really describe what um, what we dislike. Mm-hmm. It's still very sort of guttural feeling for many. Um, and, of course, at that time, uh, people really didn't have, have that vocabulary at, vocabulary at all. Um, they were just told um, that, that, that their turf house was well out of date and it was substandard and they needed to move into this stone-built dwelling that was, in many cases, provided for them them um yeah and but, but most of the accounts that deal with turf dwellings are traveler accounts so okay. these are um quite often wealthy um mostly english englishmen traveling north to see this primitive scottish uh highlander in his his turf hall right so of course they're, they're fairly biased they, they, yes of course so, some are surprised at the the size or the comfort of them but that's that's rare a lot of a lot of the reports are fairly negative yeah gone into it with that mindset of of i'm going to look at the these lesser people yeah exactly and it's yeah and of course it's uh, more than other building materials um even earth building materials it's something that continue that requires a lot of upkeep and maintenance it's a very flexible thing it's always quite close to nature mm-hmm. um, and that's something that's very uh, evident in in Iceland and the struggles they're having in Iceland to get their turf buildings uh, recognized as world heritage because they're not the same building um, they were when they were first constructed there's turf farms that are 300 or 350 years old but there's very few materials in that building that are of the same age because it's constantly maintained and adapted to sh- changes in use. Yeah. Um, which turf lends itself for very well, and that's in part why it, it serves so well as part of that agricultural cycle that would describe as part of a, a kill yard um, towards the end of its life. But it's not something that works very well within our modern paradigm. Yeah. Um, so of course, people when when you see that you see you see a turf building at a certain stage in that process. Um, so that it yeah can reflect quite poorly on the materials, um, and you only really learn to appreciate that if you zoom out and see the wider picture. Sure. Yeah. And the benefits that it brings. Yeah. And and archaeology is is a great means of achieving that because you you've got that time depth, and then you see. Oh, for me at least, it started with these turf houses in in these few centuries in the in the north coast of the Netherlands. But then, as you follow the various leads, you realise it was used throughout the North Sea and North Atlantic region, and for various layers of society. There's eighty metre long uh, turf 
holes in, in the Lofoten in Norway. There's pastoral farms built of turf in Iceland. Um, so uh, there's two-story houses in uh, Sodis in Nebraska. Yes. Uh, well, there's a lot more going on here with this material. And also, so that's just in, in geographical times, really, but also from a chronological perspective. We see the turf used in buildings from, from certainly from the Bronze Age onwards. Um, and you referred to the use of tools to build a turf house, certainly the way I, I go about it now, and the way they did in, in Scotland in the recent past and in Iceland um, until today. You, you need iron tools for that. You need a good spade and an undercutting spade to lift the block out of the ground. Um, tools they didn't have in the Bronze Age, and for most part they didn't have in the Iron Age. And um, so they, they had to go about differently cutting these turfs, and that produced a, a wide variety of different techniques. So turf, early, early on, prehistoric times, was um, encased in a formwork. So you maybe have a, a wattle formwork, um, with or without a daub finish, um, and turf was packed in uh, in between these double wattle walls. Um, so it wasn't a, a sort of self-supporting turf structure. But as, as techniques developed and tools developed, uh, you get other options. And certainly in Iceland, I think the variety of turf techniques is huge. You've got these lovely herringbone patterns, which are quite famous. You see them in, in many touristy photographs of Iceland. It's a wonderful herringbone pattern in the wall. Well, there's a whole range. There's certainly, I think, about four or five different uh, types of turf block that would produce a similar design. Yeah. Um, and the choice for each block, it can, it can be down to personal preferences, but, but generally it's down to the material you have available to you. I remember when, uh, when I first saw you talk about turf building uh, back at Clayfest. That was five or six years ago, I think. That, was, that must have been in... Oh, no, that was in Cumbria then, I suppose. Yes, it was. Yeah. It was indeed, yeah. But I was really surprised by the uh, seeing that herringbone pattern because I just imagined, you know, you cut a lump of turf out, you lay it flat, and then you put the next one on top of it. To see actually them going in at angles was a complete... Like, my brain would, I don't think, have ever thought of that. If, you know, if I was going in and trying to recreate this this uh, uh, house that you built, I would have, yeah, never found that, that as an option. The reconstruction that we made in the Netherlands used um, fairly simple rectangular blocks, about half a metre in length for the first building, uh, 25 centimetres wide and, and about eight centimetres thick. So that was fairly straightforward in terms of bonding patterns and stacking. Were them. they laid flat or were they... they were, these were laid flat uh, okay. and upside down. We know they were placed upside down because of the various archaeological observations that we've made in the in in the in the area, um, but it was really through, well, in part through going to Iceland that we learnt that um, perhaps laying them upside down discourages the grass to regenerate, um, so it will effectively allow the, the wall to dry out a, a lot better, uh, wow. which is what we're trying to achieve. But also, we found during the construction, it um, it makes it very easy to level each course because it's just soil at the underside of the of the turf. So running your spade over each course is a great pe- preparation for the next course. Uh, and course, in that way, yeah. you, you avoid any hollows or cavities in the turf. Turf is, is a flexible material, and you need to 
allow for some settlement of the turf. It might shrink a little, certainly if it has a high organic content or if it's very clay rich, it will shrink and that puts pressure on the corners. Uh, the wall head comes down a bit. Um, but any cavities within the wall will over time fill in. Um, and if these are, well, these can create all sorts of um, uh, unexpected uh, settlement issues. So it's something you try to avoid. Um, and that really works best if you put the turfs upside down and then um, level them off before you put on the next course. Yeah. Um, and then with the herringbone pattern, effectively the same principle is used. The course is trimmed and then they put on the next course. Um, the herringbone pattern really seems to work well as an economic way of building. Certainly the ones that are used most widely in the north of, the, of Iceland, um, they have a sort of tail shape. They, there's the angle at which they're cut um, goes off in different directions. So if they're angled when you see them in the wall face, but if you'd see the wall in cross section, you'll notice that they also sort of um, thin out towards the centre of the wall. And it's a, okay. it's a, it, it's a wall, Icelandic walls, or at least these are, um, they have an inner and an outer wall face. And the core of the wall is made of compacted earth. So all your spoil, all your trimmings can go into this wall core and are compacted, which is a very economic use of the materials yeah. that you've dug up for building. Wow. There, I, yeah. I'm so I, I I love talking to you about this because uh, yeah every time I'm just blown away by just I think it well it's partly because of my assumptions I assume that it's that it's a very simple thing it's very you know it's quite obvious and then you start talking about some of the the really interesting little sort of details and it's it's of course it's a whole world and as soon as you zoom in it's it's yeah, you can get deeper and deeper into these little minute details. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and I, I mean, even I, after a while, you think you've, you've seen most varieties, and then quite recently we've um, intensified our work together with um, archaeologists from the University of Edinburgh who have been researching the use of turf in for fortifications in the Roman Empire. Mm. And they came up with these wonderful examples of mortar, clay mortars being used in combination with turf construction and branches layered in between as a sort of reinforcement. And it makes right. perfect sense if you're, build, if you're using this for fortifications. Um, you need a lot of volume. You're looking for volume more than anything. So having to trim down each layer of your turf is a waste of energy, really. And if you can skip that step, but also use any trimmings you might have had, like they do in the Icelandic walls, um, you're keeping all that volume within the structure. Um, yeah. So effectively what they've done in these Roman fortifications is put the turfs in again upside down. They didn't trim them. They just covered them with a layer of mortar, put these branches in, and then put on a next layer. So you're very quickly creating this this big volume of material um, that has tim it's effectively timber-laced. Yeah. So it's very strong, um, which, of course, for military uses is great. And I had my suspicions about the use of mortar previously, um, but we don't really have the, the resolution, the archaeological resolution to confirm that. Um, but certainly in the Netherlands, along the West Coast, um, square turfs were used, a peaty turf, so a turf that 
um, would, would have shrunken a lot. And in order to stay on top of that shrinkage, ideally you would dry the turfs beforehand. Or it mm-hmm. could even have been turf that was um, dug up from uh, canals or, or ditches, um, as they did in later periods, for use as a fuel. They would mm-hmm. um, it, dredging is the word I was looking for. They dredge uh, peat from the water, cast it on the side, and like you'll have seen how um, in some countries, certainly in the in the in the Middle East, till recently, uh, mud blocks were were made, and you get these whole fields of mud blocks all one next to each other. This process would have produced a similar uh, image where they 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 cast out this dredged peat. And then as it starts to dry, they cut it up in blocks and allow allow them to shrink individually. That was used later on as a fuel, but you could produce similar uh, peat bricks for building purposes. Yeah. Of course, the side effect of it um, is that they warp as they dry. They twist and warp. So you need to use a mortar, really. Once they dry, they're so hard, you can't trim them like you do with a, with a fresh turf. So you need to, to find a sort of workaround solution for that. And, and mortar just seems like a like a great solution to it it is um, but yeah. that's really just as a at a hypothesis le- uh, level uh, still awaiting confirmation and and it's okay. great that now here in scotland they're finding evidence for similar use in in roman structures it just yeah. adds to the variety of techniques um involved in turf construction of course the implication is also that people were very knowledgeable about the use of turf they would have had a lot of experience and they knew exactly how to adapt their techniques to what type of turf was available and what they were trying to build with it. And that doesn't happen if it's only used occasionally or if people don't invest in it uh, mentally. It's, yeah. um, it's like any, any craft work. Craftspeople are con- constantly working to achieve or to improve their techniques and, um, and their results. And um, I think the variety of turf techniques demonstrates that that same process was on the go in the past for the use of turf. Yeah. I wonder if it was uh, sort of generational, you know, you'd, your, your elders would teach you to build the, with the local way, with the local soil uh, turf, and then you would teach your, you know, the younger Absolutely. generations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, of course, that process of, Handing down knowledge and experience—that's uh, been been broken, um, yeah. and we lost that knowledge. Um, but I think we can uh, relearn a lot of things, and experimental archaeology is a great way of achieving that. Uh, yeah, I'd like to come back and talk about experimental archaeology a little bit more. But while we're, well, I want there's a couple of things I want to ask you. Am I right in thinking Hadrian's Wall is that? Is some of that turf? Yeah, some of it definitely. Um, so that's quite a, a big thing that people will have. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I think everyone probably in the UK has heard of Hadrian's Wall, and now yeah. find out it's made of turf. Yeah, um, Hadrian's Wall definitely. Antonine Wall uh, used a lot of turf. Um, in fact, a lot of uh, fortifications in the Iron Age, um, Viking period fortifications. Turf is a, is a great material to build with uh, for for volume. Yeah, yeah, and and, um, and then um, how quick does it sort of? I guess from a I guess an ecological point of view, how quick does it does it grow back and 
yeah, the area you've uh, de-turfed. Well, yeah, yeah de-turfed is. is a word. <laughs> uh, uh, how, yeah, when will that be ready again to be uh, sort of harvested again? It, it really varies per site, and we don't actually know that um, in any great detail. It's one of the questions that's still out there, and certainly as we're now looking into re- using turf for, for new builds, mm. um, it's a, a question that's become more current. Um, we're now setting up a project to, to test some of these things, um, uh, a project funded by Historic Environment Scotland, to look at the use of vernacular building techniques and take an, an archaeo-based approach to, um, to small-scale new builds, hunting okay. in particular. Oh, that's um, exciting. Yeah, that's, that's very exciting. And, and one of the elements in that project, um, University of Edinburgh, um, well, it's actually a separate project I'm running with them, but it's very closely linked and we're focusing on the same site. Um, ecological impact assessment is an important part of that process. So hopefully um, by um, creating a species list beforehand and, and revisiting the site, maybe a couple of years um, afterwards, um, we'll, we'll get a better idea of the impact cutting turf has had on the landscape. The only thing um, I can really say about that at the moment is just that the positive response I got from the uh, nature organization in the Netherlands. Of course, when we set out to build, uh, this was a 17-meter-long uh, turf wall building. The walls were two meter high. They were a meter thick. So I was there as a, as a young student um, approaching this big organization in the north of the, of the Netherlands saying, can I please cut 200 square meters of turf from your um, recognized natural conservation area just outside um, the, the sea dikes? Uh, and they said, yes, please, because um, one of their issues, as it turned out, was, was that it, this was just used as pasture. It was a monocultural pasture land. Um, that was grazed by horses and sometimes cattle. Um, and they, they welcomed us cutting the turf because it created a, a habitat for pioneer vegetation to establish itself in that area. Um, and indeed, when I returned a year later, there were, there were flowers in that area where previously there was only grass. Um, so, yeah, it, that's one option, that the turf helps to create uh, a habitat that's not present in a pasture at the moment. It could help to deepen uh, ponds that have silted up. Um, so as ponds certainly with sort of slow, low flow rates of water might silt up gradually or, or through peat, peat growth. Um, so cutting turf in those areas might locally um, yeah, help to, to create open water again. So uh, for dragonflies or other other insects that might uh, might use that uh, that habitat on wetland areas with a firmer soil, so maybe in floodplains that flood occasionally and then drain again might be usable as summer uh, pastures or hay uh, areas for producing yeah. hay. Um, if we cut turf there, you create little pools that might function as uh, effectively wader scrapes. So one of the conservation interventions that uh, landowners can even get get subsidies for is to create wader scrapes. 
And these are just narrow strips, maybe 40 meters long, uh, where they take in a mechanical digger and, and scrape back a bit of the soil. I'm not sure where the soil then goes. I guess it just gets piled up on the side. Um, we can achieve the same effect by hand cutting turfs and then using that as a building material to the same uh -huh. effect. So these, these are various lines that we're exploring to, um, yeah, to not only to legitimize the use of turf and cutting it from natural environments, but particularly to find out where the benefit in that lies and how the sourcing of materials in a natural environment can be beneficial to wildlife yeah. in particular. Yeah, that's fantastic. It seems like it ties in with what uh, Sid Sid Hill was talking about in his uh, podcast episode 51 or 2. <laughs> Check that one out. Uh, that was my attempt at being a proper podcast host, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it would I should be a, be a proper I podcast listener. I've, <laughs> I've listened to so many and I've not fallen behind massively, certainly over lockdown. I think podcast listening works particularly well when you're up for a long drive. That's well, that, exactly when that I didn't listen. happen during lockdown. Yeah. So there's much catching up to do. Yeah. I, I've sort of broken the habit a little bit now. I've made more than I've listened to in the last year, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, yes, he was talking about uh, sort of succession of plants and how it's the disturbance that kind of creates new growth. Um, and, yeah, and I've, I've been... So this coming weekend, there's a... Uh, an event to, to trespass on the, the South Downs, and at the, the sort of information event, they someone asked the question, you know, what about the, the damage we're going to be doing by walking across all that land? And actually, the, the sort of response was that it's the quite often it's that that disturbance, like it used to maybe be uh, people taking sheep on and off, or you know, it's around those tracks where the the feet. Uh, sort of you know disturb the ground that you get the new growth you get the diversity and actually yeah, it's yeah a really definitely thing. um it yeah our, the landscape in which we live although it has many natural elements uh it's an, an ecological landscape in that sense it's also definitely a cultural landscape everything we've, we see effectively has been uh, is a result of past human intervention in that landscape so even from a conservation point of view, uh -huh. if you're looking to preserve um, our agricultural landscape as it exists now, uh, or, or even moorland up in the, the Scottish mountains, um, you can only really conserve that if you include the practices that helped create it. So, and I think natural building, yeah. and certainly sort of the line of approach we're now trying to deepen out with Historic Environment Scotland and others, is... Um, to look at vernacular building skills, these pre-improvement vernacular building skills that, um, yeah, I mean, the skills are there. There's a conservation need in terms of building conservation to maintain these skills. There's a handful of earth builders. There's very few thatchers in Scotland, at least. Very few greenwood timber mm -hmm. builders that could, could produce uh, a crook or a, a Scottish couple. Uh, which is quite different from, from later timber framing uh, techniques. So we need to preserve these skills, but there's a very little demand for them. Um, and, and they have all these additional benefits that we're now only just starting to explore. So cutting turf to create wader scrapes um, or pulling bracken 
to produce a thatch. Maybe in, it, in itself it doesn't make much sense to pull bracken by hand uh, just if you're looking to, cover, to produce a roof for your hut. Um, but of course, if there's a great a lot of bracken pressure on a particular hillside, um, turning this into a community activity and going out to pull bracken collectively is a great way of spending time together, but also reducing that bracken cover, uh, for which only, really the only, yeah. only alternatives are to, to bruise it, which then takes a long time to actually have a significant impact or to spray poison on it. So hand pulling yeah. is, yeah. That's... That's really interesting. So the the woodland I'm just about to put my my house into has a whole big bracken, uh, and part of my job uh, is to be you know bruising the the bracken um, to allow the the new uh, trees to, to sort of take hold and have less competition. But so thatching is a is a thing I could be doing with definitely with that yeah, and it's instead. much more effectively because for for thatching you actually want the woody bit at the bottom of the stem. That's uh, the most durable. So you pull the mm-hmm. bracken by hand, um, which of course is is labour intensive to do. If you make that into a fun a fun activity, um, and you can call on social capital yeah. um, to do that, yeah, it has a it has a bigger positive impact. Well, excellent! Everyone listening, you know, keep your ears open for the shout when I get you to come and <laughs> hang out in Exmoor pulling bracken with me. <laughs> It'll be fun. <laughs> Um, okay, so just one final thing on, on turf that I wanted to say, and it was something that Phil Christopher really um, highlighted to me the other day, was that um, the soddies, the, you know, the turf houses in Nebraska, I had never seen the connection, but I see them now very much as, I mean, they were the, the sort of step towards straw bale ha- homes. Um, you know, they were taking this building with this with sod which is what americans call turf uh sorry i'm telling the listeners not you they're uh, I'm <laughs> just nodding in agreement um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> i don't want you to think like i'm this is your specialist subject i'm not i'm just scratching the surface but um but yeah so so they were building these soddies and then they had loads of the, the sort of farming uh byproduct of straw and so Took that took the techniques on to uh, to build straw bale house, houses, and yeah, that's the first straw bale houses were load bearing houses uh, because the soddies were. Um, so yeah, it's I I find like you know I'm I'm suddenly now I know the the heritage of it because I always thought sort of straw bale it didn't really exist until a hundred years ago. Uh, and it feels like the sort of new new kid in town, but actually now it's I see it as, as part of a much longer um, development. It sort of gives yeah, you a bit more I think legitimacy. It's really I think. sprout out of nothing, so they'll have a some sort of pedigree to them that goes back, and it's retracing those lines of development, which can be very interesting in terms of turf building or sod building, as indeed it's called in in the United States or in Ireland. Um, uh, the, the spectrum of material within use within turf is just so wide. So straw, of course, is only organic fibers. Um, a peat turf is no different. It doesn't have or doesn't need to have any mineral 
sediments in it. When we looked at the salt marsh turf in the Netherlands, it had very little organic material in it, and it was mostly the clay that held it all together. So that's just the, the full width of the turf building spectrum. And uh, yeah, and it just it mm-hmm. merges. Um, it's, you, you, you can see it as something quite different, as you can see earth building quite different from modern construction. How different really is earth building using clay as a binder compared to the use of a lime mortar or in fact cement mixes they they're all based on the same tradition mm-hmm. in the end um, although of course a, a yeah. mistake we've made in the recent past is to replace one tr- one technique with another and and to not hold on to what we already had and add to that richness um, and experience from past societies mm-hmm. but yeah and see see the the multi layers of of sort of benefit beyond just just a home, just a you know whether it's new value, whether it's you know, waterproof, whether it's or length of of expected life. Uh, yeah, it seems like we've lost a whole lot more than than just. Yeah, well, so our building in the Netherlands, our house that we the brick and concrete one, or rather the one that it replaced mm. that had a lifespan of forty years, as it turned out. In archaeology, um, certainly in the Netherlands, in the literature, we say uh, past farm buildings were disposable buildings because they had such a short lifespan. They only lasted for about one or two generations. In fact, a lot of the research is showing that they lasted up to about 70, 80 years, so closer to three, three generations. And um, certainly longer than a lot of the modern buildings were building. Mm-hmm. But these structures that were looking at through the archaeological lens, we're using locally sourced timber and clay and they melted back into the countryside, leaving very few traces. Um, whereas our modern structures, are they doing the same? Uh, it doesn't seem to be the case. And, and I think for a long time, the argument's been made that, again, going back onto this whole improvement paradigm, that we were improving living conditions in modern buildings and um, improving comfort levels. There's no reason why a thatched mud wall building uh, should be any less comfortable uh, than, than a modern structure. In fact, I think a lot of people have switched on to things now and, and realized that a natural building will in fact be a lot more comfortable than a hard, echoey, concrete-based um, structure you might find in, in modern developments. Yeah, and certainly to do with sort of moisture and comfort around moisture. If you're surrounding yourself with a you know, a living natural part of the world, you know, it's gonna deal with moisture in a way that's more uh in tune with how you know what our bodies want and need. Seems pretty absolutely seems yeah. pretty sensible. Yeah. Do you do you see um do you see there to be a sort of future in new build turf buildings? In the past, in fact, I have answered that question with a definite no. I remember somebody (laughs) quite clearly asking me that when we started building the turf house reconstruction in the Netherlands. Now I definitely think there's a use for it. Um, I keep going on about this whole hutting thing, which may not be, maybe not everybody will be familiar for that, but um, the construction of Huts for leisurely use is something that's been 
um, stimulated more and more in, within Scotland. Yes, in the recent years. And campaign. Exactly. So yeah. there's now hunting legi- or there's leg- planning legislation in place to um, to allow people to to build this hut, a, a structure no bigger than thirty square meters that needs to sit lightly on the land. Um, very basic services, just a fireplace really and a composting toilet outside. Um, and ideally, you'd, well, you'd build these in places either in woodland or up in the hills. Um, and immediately if you start looking into that or trying to, to build such a structure, you think, well, how are we even going to get access? Sitting lightly on the land is one thing, but how am I going to get my bricks up there or concrete block work? Yeah. Um, I can't get a lorry in. So certainly for those circumstances, um, cutting turf locally uh, could be a great a great workaround. Um, there's generally a small quantity of stone kicking about, either um, sort of localized field clearance, just being able to pick up field boulders on the surface. Alternating stone and turf is one other technique that was widely used in the past, and it works very well with rounded field boulders or any of these glacial boulders that aren't really suitable to to building dry stone structures um, because they keep rolling down. <laughs> uh, you can you can use them fairly well with turf in between. Yeah. Um, or uh, clay with a lot of straw mixed in, as they did in Aberdeenshire in the past. Clay and bull, it's called. I think Becky referred to that technique, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yes, yeah. And um, so that's something you can use locally, and, and all these materials can be collected on site and, and brought in, and then the upper structure can be built in turf. So, um, yeah, there's definitely that is, think, that's exciting. a place for them. Yeah. And they appeal to this particular audience. Uh, Scottish black houses, Scandinavian log cabins, Icelandic turf farms feature regularly um, in imagery um, shared on the various platforms on Facebook and the hutting forums. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do appeal to the people. Although, of course, if they try and achieve such a build they'll find that they can't find the skills for it or um, yeah yeah those are the skills we need to develop great well speaking of which uh you've got some workshops coming up haven't you we do have some workshops coming up yeah in turf as it happens um yeah it's once you get into turf it's hard to get out (laughs) Uh, (laughs) as i said we're, we're, we're really looking at Pre-improvement vernacular building skills more generally. I think the best way forward, certainly in the short term, is to try and move away from the high degree of specialization um, that we've achieved, really focusing on individual uh, materials or techniques. So you're a plasterer, or you're a a thatcher, or you're a slater. And of course, in pre-improvement vernacular buildings, um, you do a bit of everything. Mm Um, so that's that's the, the route we're trying to to take towards using vernacular techniques in hutting. So you, timber thatching, clay plasters, turf building, the whole lot. Great. Um, but turf does yeah does appeal greatly uh, to me and um, and thankfully to people in the uh, <laughs> in the wider community. Yes, definitely. So we're doing a, a turf course as part of Doors Open Days this year. Uh, well, of course, it's a big word. It's really just an interactive workshop. Um, so that's sponsored to University of Edinburgh, their archaeological department, who are also seeking new ways to apply 
archaeological knowledge and experience for the benefit of modern uh, sustainable building. So um, I'm working with them and a lo- uh, the Creef and Strathern Museum, a local heritage museum I'm involved with. Um, and, and ahead of this, uh, those open days, we'll build a, a larger circular structure based on um, local Iron Age and Bronze Age roundhouse traditions. Um, and then we'll have a small additional workshop to, um, to get involved with later on. And the second turf course, which is a very exciting one, is with um, an equally exciting new initiative by the Falkland Estate and Centre for Stewardship in Fife in Scotland. They're looking to set up a new natural building school. And this first year we're running three workshops, um, one of which will be delivered by Becky Little. So anybody with an interest in clay plaster and decorative clay plastering, um, yeah, watch this space. Uh, and my, my, my course will be on turf. Uh, and we're going to raise the bar. We're going to cover everything from foundations and these sort of early formwork-based techniques um, to uh, the, the rectangular block work for solid turf wall construction, as well as the, the sort of double-skinned Icelandic techniques. Um, and we're going to build a bridge. Ooh. So a turf, a fully turf bridge. It's the first workshop where I'm actually showing up on site with no building materials. Um, so, yeah. Just, I'm a, just a shovel. Just just the tools. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. Um, and where can people find out about these? Uh, in the show notes. That's the word. Great. In the show notes. Oh, oh very good. <laughs> we'll make sure. We'll have to. Yeah. Where's... Um, Word still needs to get out, so okay. it's early days, right. but we'll make sure to put a link in the show. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you so much, Daniel. You were a wonderful guest and I'm so pleased with uh, with uh, how that all turned out. Uh, there is another 25 minutes uh, going up on the Patreon site. If you are a supporter, you get access to that. Uh, Daniel talks a little bit more about experimental archaeology. He also talks about his own project. Um, I was really hoping to squish that in, but really we uh, we overran as it was. So um, 
I'm hoping to get Daniel back on the podcast to, uh, to chat again. He's up to some uh, interesting and exciting uh, projects uh, that I look forward to hearing uh, how they've gone. Um, OK, so all the usual things. If this is your first time, make sure you subscribe in whatever podcast listening device you use. If you are listening on iTunes or Apple, then I would really, really love it if you could go and leave a review, hit five stars, say something nice if you like. That would be really appreciated because it really does help uh, us to get new listeners. What else to say? Share it, of course. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share. Again, the further we can get this out, the better. I think the more people that know about natural materials, the better the world's going to be. I think that's becoming pretty clear with the IPCC report. Some serious changes need to happen. And maybe starting with sharing a little podcast could be that. Good. That's it. Thanks for listening. Until next time. See ya. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.